Thank you, Janie. Isn't she great? All right. Well, good morning. Uh, this is a week, technically it's week two, so you're not, if, you, if it's your first time, you're not too far behind. Um, and just so you know, parents, last week we talked about know yourself in order to know God. That's why we took communion, because hopefully you all have a better understanding of who you are right now. Um, this week is, the, the title is going, going back in order to go forward, and we're going to be looking at family today, your, your family and your extended family. Um, and here's the difficult part. Uh, they're teaching the same material upstairs to your high schoolers and your junior high kids. So if, you're, if your kids look at you strange today, <laughs> you'll understand why, because they, they heard the same thing. Well, it's close to the same thing that you're going to hear today. Um, I have a bit of bad news. I'm abandoning the outline. <laughs> Sorry. I know for people that like to take notes, that's like, anyway, but just try to receive it through osmosis, okay? You know, write down the major points, but I, I, I do this every once in a while, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to abandon the outline. Um, anyway, uh, today, uh, we're, we're, again, we're talking about looking, looking going, going back, going back in your history, back to your family in order for you to go forward. Now, this has been a, t- a difficult topic for me. It's like last week was difficult because I don't, you know, uh, you know, self-reflection and self-awareness. Uh, I always associated that with narcissism. And God said, no, Josh, that's not what that is. So uh, introspection is bad. Self-awareness is good. That's what I've learned recently. So we have to know ourselves in order to know God. Now, this one, too, is I've had issues with it, too, because I'm a new creation, right? I don't want to go back. I need to keep my eyes focused ahead. I need to look at Jesus and not look at my history and look at my past. So that's always been, you know, the, the tension there, right? And I, I don't know. I've preached messages like, you know, you know what happened to Lot's wife when she looked back? You know, she got turned into a statue, a pillar of salt. Um, so I've always, you know, had tensions like, okay, you just, you know, don't, don't revisit your history. Don't revisit your family. Don't spend all that time on trying to figure out what's wrong with you. Focus on Jesus. Now, there is truth to that. I want, you to tell, I want to tell you that. If you're spending more time digging into your history and doing things that, why you do the things you do, uh, that can be problematic. That can be, you know, you could fall into areas of self-pity and things like that. So that's not what we want to do. But what we want to do is we want to see what our past has done to us, but more specifically, how it still affects us. And your family affects you more than you could possibly realize. Uh, I, went to, I went to college in Santa Barbara. And so after, after right at, like a few days after graduation, I moved to Charleston, South, South Carolina. So I was there about a year. I was in a foreign environment. I didn't know better, but I actually ended up living in a, uh, a black community, and it was a, they had two different black communities. They had the Geechees and the Gullahs. So I lived in a Gullah community, and so I began to pick up uh, their slang and their accents. So I began to talk like them because I lived in their community. I was a part of their community. But I, it was very difficult for me to, to fit in to the South. I always felt like a fish out of water. I didn't like it. I, you know, I got depressed, and it's like I was lonely. It wasn't a good fit. But I, I, began, I began to assimilate parts of the culture into who I was, and specifically this black culture. And now, Charleston in the South, it's, um, it's genteel South. It's, okay, it's not the rednecks. Can, does anybody, can see anybody speak in a redneck voice in church? Y'all, you know, like like how they speak on Duck Dynasty, okay? That, that is not Charleston. Charleston is more like Foghorn Leghorn. Now, son, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And so I was in this, I, I was working with another museum curator on an, an exhibit, and the individual says, now, son, I, I can tell that you've been hanging out with the Gullahs a little bit too long. Because I can hear that, that you're beginning to speak their language. 
son, I think you need to come over to our house for a dinner and so we can talk some things out. So it, they, they didn't really, you know, anyway, so you get the point. But I, I was like, oh, no, I just don't like, I'm not fitting in here, right? This isn't good for me. So I, I moved to, uh, a year or so later, it was after a year, I moved to uh, Seattle and I love the culture, I love the arts, I love the museum, so I really felt, I liked that part of it. I didn't like the weather. So I go to work in a, and I, and I sat in a cubicle for eight hours, that, and it was the cubicle inside of another big cubicle that had no windows. So I get to work at eight, 8 o'clock, and the sun hadn't come up yet. I have an hour for lunch, and it's raining, and, and then I get off at 4 or 5, and the sun's down. And so I, I went into clinical depression at that time because I needed the light. Literally, not, not the Jesus light. I needed the sunlight. I mean, I, was, I had this you know, light deprivation syndrome going on. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And I remember specifically, my dad says, you know, you can, you can take the boy out of Southern California, but you can't take the Southern California out of the boy. This is my culture. This is where I grew up. This, is, this feels right to me. And I like the sun. So, uh, so that, that was, that was a you know, really important part in, in learning who I am and where I come from. Now, you know, if I would have stayed in Charleston another two years and married a Southern Belle, my life would be different, right? I would, I would completely assimilate at some point. And that's important. That's an important thought. Because when the, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, 400 years of bondage. And they worked every single day. They didn't have the luxury to go to church like we do. So the parts that they could maintain of their cult were very underground, very minimal. They didn't have a whole lot of time to worship. They were there for 400 years. You better believe that they were affected by their environment. They were, for all intensive purposes, culturally they were Egyptians. They talked, they had the Egyptian slang, they had the Egyptian language. They might have had some Hebrew in there every once in a while, but you know, their, their kids were dating Egyptian kids. They were Egyptians. They, the, the, the golden calf that Aaron fashioned, it was, stylized, it was a stylized Egyptian calf. Their art was even Egyptian. We have, we have archaeological evidence of that. So what's the point? Well, the point is God took them out of Egypt. So this is another famous saying. Uh, it either comes from my dad or from my mom. Whenever I feel insecure about my life or my decisions or the job that I'm in or, uh, you know, whenever I, I, I want, I remember the good old days and I want to go back to high school, right? <laughs> things were better in high school. You know, things were better at that corporate job that I had that had all that security. Things were better back then. Whenever I want to go back we have a saying, you'll hear it, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Yeah, things are hard right now. You're starving, you're alone, you're scared, but you're free. Yeah, but when I was in Egypt, I was a slave, but I had food three times a day, and I, I knew what I was going to do each and every day. I, I had a, a to-do list that I could stick to. So I had structure, I had stability. I was a slave. And God's saying, don't go back there. You know, we've done all this work. I've freed you. I've done all this work. Don't go back to Egypt. And that was the problem with the Israelites in the desert. They're like, this, I don't like this anymore. I'm tired of eating manna off the floor. I'm tired of there being sand in my food. I'm tired of starving. I'm tired of following your leadership. I'm sick and tired of this place. I can't stand it. I want to go back to slavery where I had some security and some structure and a framework and food. God says, don't go back to Egypt. See, the problem was, the, the reason why they had to spend 40 years in the desert is because they had got out of Egypt, but Egypt hasn't gotten out of them. Do you see the point? They couldn't get Egypt out of their hearts. And we have the same problem in our faith, in our walk. Some of us have been saved for many years, and, you know, being saved, being set free, walking into freedom, experiencing freedom, having all these gifts and, and joy dumped on us. And then we why, why am I still struggling with these same things? You see, uh, freedom, freedom in Christ 
salvation, justification. We just did, I don't know, that's a big religious word, I know. But justification, we just did it in communion. When, when you take on the elements, when you receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you know what your sins are, when you, when you take on this practice, when you build this into your life and into your lifestyle, what you are saying, and what God, more importantly, what God is saying, he's saying, what sin? I don't see your sin. You didn't do it. It's, it, the way that it comes across in the Greek and the Hebrew is that it's been eradicated out of your life. It's been, it's, been, it's been sanded off of that stone. It's been erased from your history book. It's as just as if it has never happened. So God doesn't see your sin. And he says, you shouldn't see it either. You need to quit looking at it. Time to move forward. Okay, so that's that's the justification. But okay, we, we accept it, and then we move out into the desert, and we move out into our lives, or we move out into Canaan, and this is where this word comes across. It's called sanctification, and that's the process. That's the process. That's the partnering where we have to partner with God to get some of this Egypt out of us. And here's the difficult part, to get some of these family patterns out of us. See, these are the things that we don't see. We don't see our family stuff. We don't see the, you know, the, you know, the, the sins or the habits or the, the personality clicks or the, the, you know, the little impulses, the anger, the depression. We don't see this stuff. And when you were a teenager and when you were in college, you said to yourself, I am never going to turn into my parents. And then you hit 40 and you're like, oh, Dang it. Right? Dang. How did this happen to me? Where, this is like snuck up on me and got me. I have become my parents. It's a scary thing, isn't it? Now, there are great things about your family, and there are not so great things about your family. The point is, when you become a, a Christian, you have a new family. And, and Jesus, I mean, he's so brutal sometimes. He's sitting with his, with his mom, the mother of God, Mary, right? Blessed of all women, one of the most important person on the planet. So he's sitting with Mary and his brothers, and he says, you're not my mother. You're not my brothers. <laughs> you know, how insulting. What are you saying? He's saying, you know what? We're going to strip out all family problems because... In your family, you have Adam and Eve's DNA running through your veins, and there's sin in there. And what I'm saying is that there is a new way of doing business. There's a new family, and we're all invited. And anybody that, that eats at this table and drinks of this blood, they're now brothers and sisters. The entire family of God. So dump your family of origin, so to say. Dump your culture. Dump your ethnicity. There's bad things in all of them, and we're going to get to them. All right. Okay, so we have, uh, we inherit. We either chemically inherit stuff, socially inherit stuff, environmentally inherit stuff because we grow up in a certain environment. Spiritually, we inherit stuff. And today, we're going to be looking at Joseph. And I'm going to paraphrase most of the story, but Joseph... All right, finish this sentence for me. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we have the 12, the 12 brothers from Jacob, right? Okay, so we're going to start off with Abraham. Abraham, he's, a, he's the father of the faith. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. Okay, so you know the song. You went to Sunday school. You're, you're better than the other people that weren't singing that song. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. No, I know. Sorry. If you, if you didn't have a chance to go to Sunday school in your life, I'm going to give you the opportunity to teach Sunday school. What do you think about that? That's the way to learn. Anyway, um, so we have Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the faith. So there's no Bible at this point. There is no book. 
Everything that they have so far is oral tradition. They don't have the stories of Moses and Isaiah and any of this. This is, this is all new. Everything that Abraham gets, he, he hears from God, either in an audible voice or he has an impression and a feeling and he just follows it. But somehow Abraham is able to hear God's voice and he moves on it. He acts on it. He takes an incredible amount of risk and he's a big fat liar at the same time. Incredible man of God, big fat liar. And so whenever Abraham uh, finds himself in a difficult situation where he's, he's under pressure and he has the fear of man on him and, and he needs to wiggle out of something, he lies. He did it twice with his wife. I'm sure that went over well at home. But he says, yeah, she's this incredibly good-looking woman. She's not my wife. She's my sister. So he does that so he doesn't, you know, get killed or whatever. He's just trying to weasel out of stuff, weasel out of responsibility, weasel out of his identity. So he lies about it. And because of this, because of this character flaw that he has embedded deep down inside of him, it gets passed off onto his kids and into this kid's kids, fourth generation. And he, he, he perpetuates a bunch of liars. His, his dysfunctional relationship with Sarah, it gets passed down to the next generation. Okay, now let's talk about Isaac, his son. Isaac does the same exact lie, almost word for word. He's, he's, he's in a foreign country, and he's in, a, in the presence of a powerful ruler, and he has an incredibly hot wife. I mean, you, she's coming down, you know, she's a mile away on a camel, and you're like, man, that, that's a good-looking woman. She's that hot. And and so he's like, oh, you know, this guy's going to kill me for my wife. And so he lies word for word, almost the same lie that his father makes. Interesting, huh? And then, you know, his relationship with his incredibly good-looking wife has got to be one of the most dysfunctional relationships and one of the most dysfunctional marriages in the Bible. They have two kids, Jacob and Esau, right? And Jacob is the little... He's the little tent boy, right? He doesn't like to go out in the sun. He's the mama's boy. So he's Rebecca's little favorite. You know, they cuddle and tell jokes and tell stories and stuff. And, you know, and then Esau, it's, it's Isaac's favorite. And, you, know, he, you know, he's the hairy, redheaded, crazy man that's killing animals and small varmint out in the fields. And, you know, he comes home bloody and dirty and... And so there's, there's favoritism that comes in the family. And but what's worse is major dysfunction in the, in the marriage itself because uh, Rachel is like, okay, let's lie so we can steal Esau's birthright. So she orchestrated the whole thing. She's like, and don't, don't tell my husband about it. Have you ever done that? Kept things away from your husband or your spouse or your wife? They don't need to know about this. So right from the beginning, we, we, men and women of God, the, the builders of the faith, the patriarchs, dysfunction of dysfunctions. It's really quite sad. And then Jacob, I mean, Jacob just perpetuates it. it like, it's like exponentially getting worse with Jacob. I mean, his name itself is, is liar, heel grabber, deceiver. And this guy, he's a chronic liar. He's a pathological liar. He lies about everything. I can't stand this guy. He lies about everything. And not only does he perpetuate the lying, but he perpetuates the dysfunctional marriage relationships. Not only does he have one wife, he ends up with two wives. That's still not good enough, so he gets himself two concubines. So he's got four women living with him. Four. How, how hard is that? I don't. Could you imagine the tension in the home? The fights, the, 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 the snickering, the, the manipulating. Oh, what's he thinking? And so we, we, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because Jacob has these four wives, he has 12 sons. And this dysfunction of favoritism, you all, you, mom and dads, you know that you're not supposed to have favorites, right? You know you're not supposed to. But this, this favoritism got passed down. Um, Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac fa favored um, uh, Esau. And so now Jacob has all these kids, 
And the kid that he has with his hot, good-looking wife is the one that he likes the most, Joseph. And so favoritism gets passed down again. And so because of this, uh, Jacob does something really terrible. He gives Joseph the, the technicolor dream coat or the coat of many colors. In Hebrew, it comes off as um, an ornate and richly decorated coat. So it probably didn't have, I don't know what it looked like. I mean, in my imagination, it was probably weaved with precious, you know, garment, or, you know, silk and maybe had pearls or gold woven into it. So it was something really special. And he gives it to his, you know, his favorite kid. It's not fair. All right. Now, we're talking about Joseph. And look, he's no angel either. Okay, you need to understand this. You know, the hero that we, that we read about in Sunday school, he's no angel either. And because of, because of Jacob's uh, lack of wisdom and showing favoritism to his kid and actually expressing it with something tangible, uh, what happens is, of course, you know, the ten brothers are extremely jealous. And Joseph just rubs it in. Joseph rubs it in. Because, you know, he gets these dreams, right? He gets these impressions from God and... It's stuff that he ought to keep to himself because it is, you know, the 11 stars are going to bow down to your star and the sun and the moon, which represents mom and dad, they're going to bow down to you. And, you know, these, these things of wheat, these bundles of wheat, they're going to bow down to your bundle. And you see, there is no mystery here. There is no, you know, deep spiritual secrets. They knew exactly what he was saying, and he knew exactly what he's saying because he's an arrogant, spoiled little brat. And he's rubbing it in his brother's face. This is the heart of what's really going on in this narrative, in this story. I, I would beat him up. I, I'd beat this guy up in a heartbeat. They're do, anyway. All right, so uh, the brothers, you know, they got to they got to do all the hard work, and um, they usually set up camp and set up their animals uh, near near the tent. But this time they they like I don't doesn't say, but they go way they go further out. So they're a long ways away from home, and they're feeding their their flocks. And um, you know, Jacob tells Joseph, you know, go check up on the guys and see what they're doing. And so there's a, there's an instant opportunity here. And the brother that has the hardest heart is Judah. And Judah's, they, they, just, they have an opportunity. This is their only chance. So we can get back at him. And Judah's like, not only can we get back at him, let's kill him. Let's kill him. And this is what he deserves. He deserves death because he's such an arrogant little you know, spoiled kid. Let's give him what he deserves. You know, he did this despite us, to humiliate us, to make us look bad. I'm the oldest. I should be in control. I should have the coat. Let's kill him. Okay, now this is how it gets. So they, they get him, they beat him up, and they, they drop him in a cistern or an empty well, and it's way down, it's dark, it's scary, there's scorpions crawling on him. Okay, I made that up. I'm just trying to embellish a little bit, okay? Um, and this is the, the sadistic side of the story because Judah and Reuben and all the other brothers, they're, they're, they're sitting around the well and they're eating lunch. They're eat, what, what's the saying? Revenge is a dish served cold or something like that? Oh, yeah, they're enjoying their food because their little brother is in the bottom of the pit screaming, terrified begging for mercy, crying out to God, asking his brother's forgiveness, and they're sitting around eating their lunch laughing at him. It's the best meal they've ever had. They, they've poured out their revenge, and now they're getting fed. And Judah's like, and after we're done eating, I'm going to kill you myself. But then he begins to think, hmm, there is this camel on the distance coming closer to us. And here's the irony. It's an Ishmaelite, so it's a distant cousin this is the descendant of Hagar and Ishmael. 
The descendants of uh, the Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. So the great irony is he's like, ah, you know what? Let's just make some money off him instead of killing him. So they make two years' wages off of, the sell of selling him to this Ishmaelite slave trader. So he doesn't spill blood, but he, you know, he makes a profit off of it, and they're happy. And then they, they concoct this amazing story. They get blood, they spill it all over the clothes, and they, they, they go to their father. And again, this is going to communicate the heartlessness of these brothers. They're cold, calloused hearts because they approach their father. Je Joseph is his favorite, and they're happy to give him the terrible news that their son has been killed. And those are the exact words they use. Your son has been murdered. Your son has been killed. Not our brother, right? They don't use the word brother. So they've already, they've already disconnected themselves from the issue. And they, they are identifying, this is your son. He's now dead, Dad. I'm so sorry. And they're smiling or they're laughing on the inside. That is how cold and calculated these guys are. Their, their true feelings are coming out. And what do they do? For another 22-plus years, they are lying. So the lie that Abraham started, lying about his wife, it, it gets exponentially worse to where, you know, his great-grandkids are lying and living a lie. For years, they've lived this lie. Do you see all the incredible family dynamics that are going on? All right, back to the cistern. So Joseph is the bottom of the cistern. He gets sold. I mean, this is a major trauma for a spoiled little arrogant, only, you know, youngest child. This is, this is trauma. This is a milestone. If you're reading the book, this is something that we call the wall. I mean, he's, he comes up against something very difficult, and what he, he loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his position. He loses his inheritance. He loses his wealth. He loses his culture. And he becomes a slave. All, all, and he gets betrayed by his brothers. I, this has is, this is got to rock him to the core of who he is, to have that level of betrayal. And they, not only did they just betray him and stabbed him in the back, they took absolutely everything from him. His very identity, they stripped it away from him. So one big, giant, major milestone, wall, you know, trauma that, that shook him to his core. Next major thing that happens, of course, he ends up in, um, in an official's household, Potiphar. So he's in some bureaucrat's house cleaning the house or being a servant. Who knows what he was doing? And then, you know, he gets hit on by Potiphar's wife. And so we see him act out in, a, in actually in a, in a really impressive display of character because he does the morally right thing and he shows that he has sexual integrity by refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife. She's like, come and sleep with me. You're my slave and let's do it. And, you know, it's just, and he's like, he runs. So this is actually a good little story for your kids that are dealing with sexual temptation. You know what the, the, the spiritual advice is? Leave. Leave. Don't contend with spiritual warfare. Don't give them a little Bible study to read. Don't give them a scripture to memorize. You tell them to leave. Get out of the environment. Run as fast as you can. And so he does that. We ought to model that whenever we're tempted with something. And so he's over, he has this incredible sexual integrity where he knows what's right and he does the right thing. What's the result? What's the result? Twelve years in an ancient prison. I, you know, I've visited prisons before. I don't, I don't like our modern prisons. They, they, they scare me. I know that People in prison have a certain amount of rights, but it's a very, oh, it's a horrible place. And everybody that I've talked to that has been in prison, you know, they, they strip you of your, uh, of, of your self-worth and, and of your identity, and they just belittle you, and they treat you like an animal. Prison's a horrible place. You don't want to go there. And this is an ancient prison. 
There, there, there are no legal rights to these people. Who knows what horrors Joseph experienced in an ancient Egyptian prison? It's about as worse as you could possibly think of. So you think of modern-day prisons, you times that by 10, that's what he experienced. This is a second major, major trauma going to an ancient prison for doing the right thing. How come God didn't come in and intervene? I wonder if he had that conversation in the jail cell. God, I did the right thing, and what do I get? You know, 10 to 12 in the worst prison on the planet? You know, your, your word says you are to, you're going to come through for me. That's what the Bible says. How, I'm, that is not my experience right now. Have you ever been with that situation? You, know, you read God's word. You know, these are, these, I'm going to identify with God's promises. I'm going to claim God's promises. And then you end up in Murphy's Law. Like, why? This doesn't make sense. Why are things getting worse? And things got worse. And then he has, you know, he makes some friends. You know, he's able to function in his dream interpretation gifts. He makes some friends, and, and he says, remember me when you get out. And they don't. He helps them out. He, they become buddies. You know, they tell war stories. He complains about his brothers. They're confidants, companions, comrades in arms. They're in prison together, and they forget about him when, he, when they get out. Do you see the levels of betrayal that Joseph is going through? He's betrayed by his family. He's betrayed by authority figures over him, taken advantage of. He's betrayed by his friends and his confidants. How in the world can he trust anybody ever again? How in the world can he never harbor bitterness? Or how can he not harbor bitterness and unforgiveness? He should be the most bitter guy on the planet. And through some stroke of luck, the Pharaoh finds out that he can interpret dreams. He gets called into the court. You know the rest of the story. He saves Egypt because he has this dream of famine. He says, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. You've got to save, you have to save, you have to plan. And if you do all of these things, Egypt will be spared, and you will be able to provide for the Levant, and you know, you'll, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna gonna save the world if you, if you follow my instructions. And so not only does Pharaoh follow instructions, he makes Joseph number two, viceroy of all Egypt, uh, the prime minister of Egypt, if you will. He had all that kind of power. And it says that it wasn't just, you know, he was you know, the prime minister. Uh, it says, I think in 45, it says, Pharaoh took his ring off. He took his ring off and he gave it to Joseph. Do you know what that means? It means he gave him his name because on this ring was a little cartouche. His, it was Pharaoh's name, and that was his authority. That was his word. That was the law. That was the credit card. He could do anything with that ring. He gave him un, you know, unbridled control. He says, you're going to run the whole country. I'm going to go to my, you know, my little uh, recreational area and sip my ties because I don't want to deal with this stuff. I just want to get massages all day long. Joseph, you run the country. And that's what happens. In essence, he took, he took Pharaoh's name, and Pharaoh married him to the high priest's daughter. So, okay, if you know ancient Egyptian mythology or history, Pharaoh is not just king, he's God. Joseph is able to use Pharaoh's words as if he was God himself. That's how people followed. People followed deities. And I know I'm not enough about you know, e Egyptian history that you know, they, officials at that level were deified, especially if you're married to the high priest's daughter. That's how they viewed him. It's an important point to think about when we, begin in, when we read our text. All right. Man, am I done already? Oh. This is why I abandoned the notes. Okay. Turn with me real quick to... Genesis, the last chapter in Genesis. Israel, the country of Israel, Palestine, the Levant, whatever you want to call it. 
It's literally starving to death. The famine has hit. Uh, Joseph's brothers are, and his father, they're starving. And so they, they eat some humble pie. They travel down to Egypt. They're going to start begging for provisions. And you know the story. They show up. They don't recognize Joseph because he is culturally an Egyptian right now. He's, he's got the accent. He's got the slang. He's got the power. And so they don't recognize him. And, uh, you know, they go through a series of, of tests. We see Judah's character. This is, the, this is the interesting part. Judah's character transforms. When, when Joseph kind of puts them through some tests, and Joseph says, I want the youngest. I want daddy's favorite to come up here and be with me. I want Benjamin. You know what Judah says? Judah says, oh, don't do that one. My father loves him too much. Don't take Benjamin, take me. This is the guy that was enjoying his lunch while, his, while Joseph was uh, screaming in pain and terrified. And this, is the, this is the brother that says, I'm gonna kill you. And now he says, don't kill daddy's favorite, kill me instead. See? The brothers had gone through trauma too. There was some pain going on in their lives too. And they were probably under the conviction, you know what, we're paying for our sins right now. We did wrong. And you can see a repentant heart in Judah. Don't take him, take my life instead. All right. And then, of course, you know, they're at a table. Here's the irony. Here's the, here's the juxtaposition. So the last meal they had together, it was, it, Joseph was at the bottom of the well screaming in terror, and they were enjoying the screams and, you know, the fondue. And now they're at an, a royal table. They're at Pharaoh's table. They're having a feast. And these guys have been starving for years. They're having this incredible feast. Joseph stands up, and he says, I'm Joseph. I forgive you guys. I love you guys. And then they have this big giant hug cry fest thing, right? It's reconciliation. They, 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 they rebound. You know, they, they get back together. It's a good thing. It's a powerful thing. Have a cry fest, right? The family comes down. Even Jacob comes down to, to Israel, and they had lived there for a while. They're getting through this plague. Uh, chapter 50, verse 13. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, Jacob dies, okay? They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and, plan, and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive them. Forgive the sins of the, of the servants of God, of your father. Okay, catch this. When their message came to Joseph, Joseph wept. Joseph cried. Why? Because he knows that they're lying again. They have the hug fest. They have the cry fest. They have the reconciliation. But the lying patterns of the family is still there. Because they're saying, oh, man, he's gonna, now that daddy's dead, he's going to get us now. So they still don't have trust. He could have killed them a long time ago. He could have had fun with their deaths. He could have done all kinds of creative th things, but he didn't. He brought them in, he fed them, he loved them, and the reason why he's crying is because he realizes that the pattern of lying that was passed down from Abraham is still there. They haven't, they're, they're still being sanctified. They're still going through this process. Now it gets really interesting, and we're going to get to the heart. This is how you are able to go back in order to go forward. You have to have Jacob's, so you have to have Joseph's heart. You have to have his insight. Maybe you even need to go through three different traumatic things in order to get that heart and that insight. Maybe you need to be broken. Joseph is a broken person. He allowed God to break him, and this is what we get. Okay, keep in mind, this is an individual that has God-like authority on the planet. Everybody that hangs out with him, the entire country of Egypt, they see him as divine. Listen to what he says. His brothers came, 
and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Okay. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Wow. Are you kidding me? If anybody has the authority to inflict vengeance and judgment, it's Joseph. And what does he say? I don't have that authority. I'm not God. And that one sentence, that one truth, it actually goes back to the garden. What was the temptation of the garden? You eat the fruit. You know, God says to Adam and Eve, he says, look, here's your Bible. It's right here. It's on this fortune cookie. This is the only thing that you need to memorize. Don't eat the apple off the tree. That was their Bible. That's all they had to memorize. They could just like roll it up and put it into their pocket. That was the word of God. And then everything else you want to do, you can do. Just don't eat the apple. And the temptation that came in from the enemy of God was, he doesn't want you to eat the apple because he doesn't want you to be like God. He doesn't want you to be a God. And what Joseph says is he says, I am not like, I'm not God. I don't have the right to dispense vengeance. You know how important that is? Do you, want, do you want justice and vengeance to happen to the people that have wronged you? You want them to get what they deserve and get, their, you know, get your pound of flesh? Do you want that? Well, if you do, you're acting like God, and it's not your place. Vengeance is not your place. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do you know why? Because God is the only being in existence that can give vengeance, that can distribute justice, that can pay back evil for evil. He's the only one that can do it without becoming evil himself. When we begin to, inf- to, to say, okay, this is just, and I'm going to, you know, I have the right, I have the moral obligation to impose my vengeance on this person or on this situation, what we are saying is, I have the right to be God. I choose what is right and wrong. That's dangerous. J.J.R. Tolkien wrote a book on that, right? So they had the ring of power, and, you know, the only way that you could overcome evil is with evil and, you know, wear the ring, and, but then you become the dark lord and all this kind of stuff. The only way that you can get rid of it is, is throw it into the fire. The only reason that you can get rid of your bitterness and your anger and your vengeance is to throw it in the fire. Give it to God. Vengeance is mine. One of the other annoying things that my parents have told me over the years is whenever I had issues with somebody, whenever I was hurt by somebody, betrayed, they'd say, you got to give them to the Lord. What? You got to give it to the Lord. You got to hand them over to God. What? I don't want to. It's the most annoying thing in the world. I don't want to hand them over to God. I'm right. They're wrong. I'm not going to hand them over to God. I want to judge them myself. And when I judge people and myself, you become evil. You hold on to bitterness. You hold on to callousness. You become dark. Your thoughts begin to get twisted. And then you want more. Then you begin to see the bad in everybody. Then you begin not to trust anybody. Give it to the Lord. Because vengeance is mine. You leave it alone. It's not your place. It's not your seat. Joseph knew that. He knew it. (laughs) He had supreme power. What an amazing man, right? Somebody that had ultimate power on the planet was able to say, I'm not God. I'm not falling into these delusions. All right. Am I in the place of God? And here is the beauty. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done and the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. You know what this is saying? Look, this is, this, this verse right here, it sums up all of Genesis. What was intended for, for evil 
God has changed it around for good. In Romans 8, 28, Paul says the same thing. He says, uh, all things work to those who love God. All things. Every little negative or every big negative thing you've ever encountered in your life, it's all going to be turned to good. God's not going to waste any pain, any hurt in your life. He can take every single situation and turn it around for good. Everything. All things. What is it? What was intended to harm you? Whenever that person wanted to hurt you? God can use it for good. How does Joseph do this? He's able to see life from a different perspective. When he was in the well, he didn't see it. When he was at Potiphar's house, he probably didn't see it. But when he was in prison, when he was in the valley, he was able to be outside of himself. He was able to be transcendent. And somehow he was able to connect with the truth of who God is, the gospel truth. See, what he says right here, that's gospel. That's a, not only does it sum up all of Genesis, it sums up the gospel message. What was intended for evil, God's going to use it for good for the saving of many souls. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The enemy of God, he intended to kill Jesus on the cross. It was an evil act. It was complete horror. And God turned it around and made it good for us so that we could receive salvation. So he's able to see life from a different perspective. Even though when he's going through a valley that is, you know, 15 years, 22 years long. Can you suffer for 22 years and maintain a, a vision of God in your life? Can you wait that long? Or is your attitude or is your perspective, you know what, life is good, God is good. Life is bad, God is bad. Or if you're smart, you'll say, well, God just might not be present right now. Or God just doesn't care right now. See, Joseph doesn't, Joseph's perspective is, life is bad, God is good. Can you do that? I, I, it's difficult, isn't it? And then he acts in God's character. He displays kindness to his brothers, even though they just lied to him again. Retrace with our, our family of origins, what we do and what we don't see. I have a list in your bulletin because I didn't get to it today. Um, I've asked Steve to close us out because Steve has a different perspective, and that's good sometimes. And he's got a perspective on this church, and he's going to share it. Come on up and close us out, Steve. Pastor Steve, that is. <laughs> Goals in life is to be one of those jugglers that calls us those little, you know, bowling pins. But as a pastor, you do it with mics. You kind of, you know, do one of these things. Okay, you guys wouldn't appreciate that. But anyway, but, uh, you know, when we talk uh, <clears throat> about these things of uh, uh, the iceberg uh, being 10% above and 90% below, obviously we're talking about um, the need for God's Spirit to show up and, and do these things in our life. Would you agree? You know, try as you might. Uh, you know, it's just uh, impossible to make a change uh, unless the Lord shows up in our lives. And uh, um, not sure about you, but I've been uh, beaten by life so severely. <laughs> not Janie, but uh, <laughs> but by life uh, that I just uh, at a point now where uh, I maybe it's partly getting as old as I am, uh, just realizing that uh, unless God does it, it's not really going to work. And uh, unless God uh, motivates, empowers, uh, even gives me the desire to change. It's just not going to work. So let's just pray together. Would you just close your eyes? I, 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 I'm not a very spiritual person, maybe, but I find it easier to close my eyes and to focus in on, on the spiritual things of life, on, on God, His presence. And um, Let's just pray together. Let me, let me lead you in a little bit of prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for your desire to change our lives your desire to ultimately change Granite Creek and your desire to ultimately change this whole part of, of, the, of the area here around here, that our, our, our community. And so, Lord, we pray that it begin right here 
right now with, with me. I pray, Lord, that you would come right now and that you would give me your strength, your power, your desires. So, Lord, uh, and, and if uh, that, that speaks to you, that, that, uh, that, that desire, that uh, hunger for that kind of change, not in your own strength, but in the very strength of, of God himself, the strength of, of the Holy Spirit, would you just pray this simple prayer we've talked about a time or two around here? Would you pray, here I am? Let's pray it together if that's your heart. Here I am. Here I am. So, Lord, we, we say, Lord, uh, move through our lives this week. Lord, do something great in our lives through us. And, and with our eyes closed still, some of you today have, uh, maybe you're at a point now where you are just on the verge of crossing into following Jesus. And uh, uh, what, what I'd like to do, <clears throat> and maybe it's been a, a series of events that have come along. Who knows what all God has used. In my life, he used a bumper sticker at one point. And so who knows what all has happened. But today, as you walked in, you sensed the, uh, the, the invitation of, of Jesus. You sensed a tap on your shoulder. Maybe it happened through the song, maybe through a prayer, through the scriptures. But you felt that, that invitation. He tapped you on the shoulder. What that means is this. He wants to follow he wants to have a relationship with you. He's inviting you to follow him. And, and I don't care where you are, if you're right on the verge of crossing over into really depending and following Jesus, heart, soul, strength, and mind, or maybe you're close to the edge of that. I'd like to pray with you. Just, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you do anything whatsoever. One, one little thing, just to look up at me so I can know who I'm praying for. So would you just look up? That's you. I want to. I'm in the. I'm on the verge. I want to go forward from this point. God bless you, and, and God bless you over there, and over here. God bless you and you, and and so would you, let me just pray with you. Those of you that prayed, and, and Lord, we we pray that you would come now, that you would begin from this point forward to fill us, fill me, to change me. I tell you, God, that I trust in you. I trust in you. More than in my own strength, I trust in you more than my circumstances. And I say, Jesus, come in and right from the inside out, begin here and now to change me. To change me. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Why don't you clap for the people that have said yes and to you. To you that have... Uh, you know, to, to you guys who said, I, I you know, I, I can't really do it on my own. That's, uh, you know, that's a... Incredible place to, to end up. Um, let's have the ushers come forward, and we're going to take an offering here, wherever they are. There's is an usherette. Is a girl an usherette? It sounds like cheerleaders or something. Those, those those girls that march with white boots and little things on them. I had that in high school anyway. Maybe that's not in California, but uh, uh, let's give strongly to the Lord today. And you know one of the very cool, amazing things about Granite Creek is this. You can go to a lot of places, and, and I, I love what Jesus is doing in all the churches all over the place, but not everywhere do you give and see a whole bunch of it go back out. This is kind of, a, kind of an interesting church. You know, we, we figure out really creative ways to lose money at Granite Creek. And so if you have another creative way, just let us know and uh, stop us in the hallway. You know, you know stop, uh, you know. Pastor Larry or, or Janie or, you know, whatever, and, and just say, you know, I've got another creative way to lose money. And, you know, we'll just listen to you. You know, so uh, as we give, we're giving back to the Lord. We're giving back to change the city. So, Lord, we give back to you now. We say, Lord, change, change Claremont, change this whole area of, uh, of the, uh, the valley. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, use our, our dollars that we have gotten from you and that you would uh, change everything. In Jesus' name, amen.